Thank you, Father. And we pray now that you would help us to preach. Send your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. About 32 years ago, I took my father and my best friend Dave down to Tijuana, Mexico. Soon my youth group from Los Angeles, from Bella Presbyterian Church, would be building homes for the desperately poor living in the Tijuana dump. From the Tijuana dump, you could look out and you could see San Diego. We had just met a young woman who had given birth to a baby under a piece of carpet slung over a rope. And on the way home, we decided to visit the Crystal Cathedral and take a tour. We were met by this very bubbly, happy, cheerful kind of uh, church lady who gave us a tour, showed us around uh, the place. At one point, she uh, told us about their utterly impressive organ, I, I, uh, pipe organ. I didn't know uh, at the time uh, uh, much about pipe organs, and I don't remember the specs, but I remember her saying it was something like the most expensive pipe organ in the United States of America. She told us the cost, and then there was this immense smile on her face. She said, but it's not our pipe organ. It belongs to Jesus. And I thought of the last and the least of these in the Tijuana dump. I thought of the parable of the talents and stewardship, and I just, I grew indignant. I grabbed the woman by the collar, and, and I just yelled in her face, Jesus doesn't need a pipe organ! Why the waste? This pipe organ could, could be sold and the money given to the poor just a hundred miles from this very spot. I, I grabbed her and I, and I screamed in her face. In my mind. Because <laughs> he wouldn't get arrested or anything, anything like that. But what a, I mean seriously, what a ridiculous, impractical woman. And by and large, women are ridiculous, impractical, and... <laughs> and Kind of strange, amen? At the time, I was newly married to a woman, and I was coming to terms with this reality. My bride would go without food in order to use our money to buy wooden ducks, silk flowers, and knickknacks because they were pretty. She thought they were pretty. On summer evenings, this is still true, it will be 90 degrees outside. We don't have air conditioning in our house. And, or no, it'll be 90 degrees in the house, 70 degrees outside. I'll come home and all the windows are half open. Now, I've explained to this woman hundreds and hundreds of times, honey, if you open the windows all the way, the house will cool down twice as fast. And she always looks at me and says, oh, Peter, thank you. Okay, all right, okay. But she never does it. She never opens the windows all the way. And finally, I realize she thinks half open windows are beautiful. So she would rather starve and roast than sit in a room without beauty. If you say something is beautiful, you're saying that it's good for nothing. It's impractical. It's not good for some other reason. It's just good. Well, Susan had a strange attitude toward beauty, and Susan had a strange attitude toward pain. At the time, I thought she was a wimp. Uh, because she would not go mountain climbing with me. She, actually, she went with me on our like third date, and then she decided that was enough. She wouldn't go mountain climbing with me. She wouldn't work out with me because it was just a pain. It was a pain. She didn't like the pain. I thought she was a wimp until three years later, I was staying next to her in an operating room holding her hand. She'd been in absolute agony for about 24 hours. There was complications. There was blood everywhere. She was passing out from the loss of blood and the pain. In all my days, I have never seen a person in that much pain. I remember thinking to myself, Peter, you better enjoy this, child, because this is the last one you'll ever get. Well, the moment Susan saw our first, Jonathan, our little boy Jonathan, she just cried out. She couldn't control herself. Oh! <gasps> I want another one! I want another one. All that pain was entirely eclipsed by joy, the joy of creation. Yet, yet it was a strange kind of creating. It wasn't um, creation through conquest and dominion, the way men usually uh, create and acquire. It was creation by surrender and submission. And what an incredible creation. It was God's creation coming through her, 
She bore his creation and endured unspeakable pain. They held Jonathan up and she cried, oh, I want another one. And then she said something like this, he's beautiful. Now, I came to adore my son over the next few months and, and years, but beautiful? He looked just like a booger. I mean, have you ever seen a newborn baby? They're covered in mucus and blood and, oh, gosh, beautiful. Well, she had a strange attitude toward beauty and a strange attitude toward pain and this strange ability to see beauty in the midst of pain. So I'm just saying women are strange. Amen? Amen. I wanted to grab this woman at the Crystal Cathedral and yell, why the waste? Why the waste? Matthew 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's Handel's Messiah, Barry. Um, Psalm chapter two, <laughs> verse two. In Israel, the king was anointed and the high priest was anointed. In Hebrew, anointed is pronounced Mashiach. Uh, the anointed is literally the Mashiach, the Messiah. In Greek, the Christ. Uh, next verse. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask. That alabaster is like a, a stone. It's an earthen vessel. An alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? Apollia. Apollia is translated waste or sometimes perdition. So, what the hell would be a pretty good translation. What the hell, why the waste? This is scandalous. Now, it was scandalous for many reasons, not least of which was that the one who was doing the anointing was a woman. You know, Moses uh, anointed Aaron, the high priest. Samuel anointed King Saul and King David. And now a strange woman was anointing the Mashiach, the Messiah. In that society, women weren't allowed to eat with a male guest. It was improper for a woman to talk to a man in public. Every day, Jewish uh, men or boys were told to pray this prayer in which they thanked God that he had not made them a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And now a woman was anointing Jesus in public, and this was not the first time. According to Luke, earlier in Jesus' ministry at a Pharisee's house, a prostitute anointed Jesus' feet with tears and perfumed ointment. Ointment she had undoubtedly used to ply her trade. They would keep it on a necklace around their their necks, and, and, and she, she, had, she anointed Jesus' feet and then let down her hair and uh, massaged the oil into his feet with her hair and her tears, the start of his ministry. According to John, just a few days before this anointing in Simon the leper's house, in Lazarus' house, Mary, uh, the faithful disciple of Jesus and sister to Lazarus, anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. Now, liberal scholars will say that all, the, all this has got to be just one instance written into all these different occasions. I, I don't think so. I think this happened to Jesus, like, all the time. A at least three times. You know, Jesus' disciples were male, and yet there was like this pack of strange women that followed Jesus wherever he went, ministering to him and his disciples, quote, providing for them out of their means, uh, according to, to Luke chapter 8. That, that would have been costly, risky, scandalous, and strange. 
strange for those male disciples. And now when things were really getting stressful, this unnamed woman dumps a fortune of perfumed oil on Jesus' head, not his feet, his head. Mark records that the oil was worth 300 denarii, which was a fair year's wage. So what is that for you, $50,000? Maybe $100,000? Maybe the price of a nice pipe organ? A strange woman just dumps that on the Messiah's head. Jesus has just told the story of the sheep and the goats, and before that, the parable of the, of the talents. How could this be a good stewardship of their limited resources, their talents? We're talking enough perfume to build easily a hundred houses in the Tijuana dump. Enough money to feed the masses, start a revolution, maybe inaugurate the kingdom. Jesus had said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom. It appears that at this time, all the disciples were Zionists of, of one ilk or another. I mean by that that they hoped that Jesus would lead a political revolution, overthrowing the Roman oppressors and establishing a just Hebrew society, a homeland. Zion. The kingdom. In some form, I suppose that everyone is a Zionist at, at some point in their life. Americans pursue the American dream, right? Home of the free, land of the brave, like Zion. Muslims pursue the nation of Islam, submission and peace. Jerusalem, city of peace, Jerusalem, like, like Zion. Marx taught that communists could create a new class of people, the perfect society, devoid of poverty, like Zion. Hitler taught that the Aryans would purify a perfect race of people, the perfect society, like Zion. Many Zionists today work for a purified Jewish people group in a purified Jewish state in Palestine, Zion. Well, Christians also hope for Zion. The New Jerusalem. Zion was the name of the fortress that became Jerusalem. Many seem to think that we can produce it with the right strategy, programs, and even military conquest. And you see, all of that takes money. It takes a lot of, of money. Well, the disciples were Zionists, and I suspect the most ardent among them was a fellow named Judas Iscariot. A few days before this, when Mary anointed Jesus, uh, Judas had protested, and now at Simon the leper's house, they all protest using the words of Judas. What a waste! This could have been sold and the money could have been given to the poor. Why the waste? I imagine that they meant more than just perfumed oil. For three years, they'd followed Jesus now, given up everything for Jesus, or at least what they expected to get from Jesus. They had seen Jesus feed the hungry, heal the sick, walk on water, raise the dread, dead, and, and draw immense crowds, immense crowds of people ready to do whatever he told them to do. But now, he had walked into the heart of Jerusalem in the midst of incredible opposition and against their better judgment. Not Jerusalem, don't go there now, not Jerusalem. He had not raised an army but only seemed to offend the powers that be by busting up the temple, rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees, and on top of everything else, choosing to dine at a leper's house. Simon the leper's house. He didn't go to a leper's house. But worst of all, he had just told them that in two days he would be delivered up to, to be crucified, delivered up by Jews to Romans, that was the only way that crucifixion worked in that day, in that society. I mean, the disciples had to be in some form of denial. Surely Jesus is just speaking in, in metaphors. He can't really mean it, they, they must have thought. Crucifixion, that would be an unconscionable, that would be just like an absolute waste right now, at this time, in this place, we're on the brink. I doubt that they could consciously process such an absurdity. But now when this strange woman just dumps this fragrant oil all over Jesus and his robes, they just blurt out, why the waste? This could have been sold and given to the poor. 
to the poor by the ways. See the problem? The oil was good for something other than Jesus. And Jesus was good for something other than Jesus. To Judas and the disciples, Jesus was good for something. He was good for healing the sick, feeding the poor, building the kingdom, and saving themselves. To Judas and the disciples, Jesus was good for something, but to this woman, he was just good. He was beautiful. You know, all the disciples abandoned Jesus the next night because he no longer worked. He was no longer good for something. But that pack of strange women, they stayed. They were at his cross. Mary of Magdalene, who was likely a prostitute. Mary of Bethany. Mary, his mother. And maybe this other unnamed woman, maybe she was there. The, the Marys, the strange women, were there. They even tried to anoint his dead body. Why? By visiting his tomb, you know, they risked murder and, and rape at the hands of Roman soldiers. They were at his, his tomb. Why were they at his, his tomb? From the story, it's clear that they did not expect him to rise from the dead. They were at his tomb. Why? He's, he's dead. What is that? That's like good for nothing. I have a friend that was horribly abused by her father. As a young woman, she ran away from home and came to know Jesus in another city. As a new believer, she happened to go to this seminar led by a famous Christian teacher who seemed to suggest that if she did certain things like forgive her parents and submit to her father, that Jesus would work for her and save her, her city, so to speak. That is, he would make her heart a fortress, like Zion, that could no longer be hurt. So she moved back to the city from which she fled. Her father found her, living in this old apartment building. Uh, he went to the door, knocked, and uh, when she peeked through the crack, she saw him and he said, I'm sorry. So she let him in in order to forgive and submit. He beat her, raped her, left her bleeding on the floor with a broken rib. She told me this story as we sat in a rental car outside of that apartment building. That morning, Susan and I had flown with her to this city to help her remember. She said, Peter, this is where I denied Jesus. I denied him because I thought he didn't work. I thought he was weaker than Satan. I said, but, but you came back to him. And she said, yeah, yeah, I did. I said, well, do you see what that means? You loved him when he seemed to be good for nothing. You loved him when he didn't seem to work. You loved him naked and beaten and hanging on a cross. She said, yeah, I, I guess so. You know, when I was beaten and, and raped again, I didn't deny him. Because I figured that even if he was weaker than Satan, I wanted him. Because he's good. Not good for something. Just good. Kalos in Greek. Beautiful. I wonder what that means to Jesus. You know, Jesus is literally good for everything. 
and now I think, I think he's shown that to, to my friend. He's literally good for everything. Jesus is good for everything, for everything is literally created and sustained by him and through him. He's the word of God through whom all things are created. There is no force more powerful than the word of God. Jesus is good for everything. But until that day, I wonder if anyone had ever loved him when he was good for nothing, just good. Maybe Mary, because a baby is kind of like good for nothing, just good. Beautiful means good for nothing, just good. A sunset is beautiful. Whether you use it or you don't use it, it still is still beautiful. From, from our sermons on Genesis and recently Ecclesiastes, you may remember what Jesus said. He said, God alone is good. And that means that Jesus is like the good in flesh. And so in some amazing and mystical way, Perhaps he is the fruit hanging on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden, which is the very same location, according to Genesis, as the tree of life. If so, when Eve took the fruit from the tree, she, she took the life of the good from uh, the tree, the same tree, and so she died. Why? Because the life died. The good died. Jesus is the life and Jesus is the good in flesh. Well, in the same way, humanity took the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. When we took the life of Christ on the tree that was in the garden where he was laid, and you remember, the sky grew black. The earth trembled as if the earth was in sorrow, for the good died. And according to Paul, you also died. We died with him. This is my point. Eve saw the good and took the good because she saw that it was good for food and to make one wise. She saw that it was good for something. It was good for making herself in the image of God. So what would it look like for someone to see the good hanging on the tree and not take it because they thought it was good for something, but instead worship it for it was good for nothing, just good. What would it look like for someone to see the good hanging on the tree and to just worship the good? I mean to drop to their knees as the earth trembled and the sun failed, and to say, surely this man was the Son of God. This man was good. Well, Jesus is literally good for everything. But when he appears to be good for nothing, most of us, I think, I think we tend to think, what the hell? Why the waste? What a waste. My father was a pastor who acted a lot like Jesus and got crucified like Jesus, and I watched it. He lost the church that I grew up in, the church I dearly loved, and, and I remember, well, I don't even know if I was so aware of it at the time, but I know now that my heart thought, what a waste. It was then that I decided to go to seminary and become a pastor myself. I attended four years of seminary. I was ordained and worked as an associate for four more years before I came back to Colorado and became the pastor of a little church on Lookout Mountain, a little church that in 15 years became a big church on the side of I-70 in Genesee. I worked about, on the average, I think 70, maybe at least 70 hard hours a week, which took an incredible toll on my wife and my children, but the church grew. I saw God, I saw God do amazing signs and wonders. I published two books and had agents vying for my attention. I had famous authors that 
called me pastor. We built a multi-million dollar facility and we were making plans to preach the gospel of relentless love to the nations, the gospel of relentless love. You see, for 15 years, over those 15 years, I discovered that Jesus died for all and that his death was sufficient for all and even effectual for all by creating faith in all, and I discovered that Satan kept us in lifelong bondage by convincing us that God didn't want to save us, or that God could not save us, and so did not save us in Christ Jesus our Lord. After 14 years, my denomination came to me and said, you can't say that. That God might save everyone. That he might save all. And unless you publicly say that God can't save all and takes pleasure in damning some, you will lose this kingdom that you have built on this mountain. They put me on trial. Thousands of people had just raised millions of dollars to build this brand new state-of-the-art facility on the side of I-70. My children were all in youth group. One of them planned to be a pastor. The other one wanted to be a missionary. They called staff members their aunts and their uncles. That's how they referred to them. We had started ministries in the Dominican Republic and around the world delivering fresh water to the poor and the gospel to the nations. It was my Zion in more ways than I can possibly even begin to explain. And it was Zion for a few thousand other people who I knew would feel abandoned by me if it all fell apart. And you may be one of those people. They put me on trial, and I hoped that through the process of trying me, they would begin to hear that God is better than we thought. And the love of Jesus is deeper than we know, and the Spirit is everywhere working the wonders of mercy. They put me on trial, and I hoped, I hoped that the dialogue would spark a reformation. They put me on trial, but I don't believe they listened. They just made their demands. I couldn't say what they wanted me to say. And so they took it all away. I cannot even begin to express my grief. For nine and a half years, I've wanted to scream at the top of my lungs, what a, what a waste! What the hell, Jesus! Why the waste? Sometimes serving Jesus just seems to be an absolutely colossal, even epic waste. Verse eight, the disciples say, why the waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor, but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. A kalos ergon, a good work. For the entire Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been talking about good works. And outside of Jesus, this is the first one that we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew. This strange woman does a kalos ergon to Jesus. There are two Greek words that get translated good. One is agathos and the other is kalos. Agathos suggests what is ethically good, as in good for something. Kalos suggests what is intrinsically good. That means good for nothing, just good. And so kalos often is translated beautiful. She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Burial. This strange woman has anointed Jesus, but not because he's the king, not because he's the high priest. You know, the king and the high priest are good for a lot, but she's anointed him because soon he will be good for nothing. Dead. Doesn't that basically mean good for nothing? The body is broken. The blood is shed. Good for nothing, but good. Good. 
Some call that beautiful. A high priest who sacrifices himself as a fragrant offering. The king of kings who descends into the depths of the earth. She could not comprehend all of that, but she could recognize beauty. She sees the beautiful one, and then she does the beautiful thing limitlessly, extravagantly, unselfconsciously, as if it were her nature. Truly, I say to you, says Jesus, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, in the whole cosmos is the word, what she has done will also be told in memory of her or as a memorial from her, whenever, wherever, in, in all the cosmos, as if her good work, her beautiful thing is, is eternal, like an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Jesus, it was like he valued her deed above all things, as if all things were arranged to give birth to this deed, and the disciples called it a waste. Do you remember what Jesus called Judas? John 17, the son of waste. The son of Apollia, translated waste or perdition. All Judas' efforts to save the city, build the church, build Zion, feed the poor, a waste. And did you hear what Jesus just said? The poor you have with you always. He's quoting Deuteronomy 15, verse 11. For the poor will never cease out of the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand. Did you get that? I mean, what, that, what kind of a fundraiser is that? Give to help the poor because you'll always have the poor. I mean, that's rather defeatist, isn't it? Um, you will always have the poor, so give to the poor. Is that defeatist? Yes. If your goal is the elimination of poverty. And no, if your goal is the act of giving to the poor. Yes, if you want a Marxist or capitalistic utopia in, in which mercy is obsolete. And, and no, if you're aiming for a kingdom flowing with mercy and red wine, like our body is constantly flowing with blood and, and life, where, where mercy is not obsolete, but mercy is absolute. The whole thing runs on mercy. Is that defeatist? Yes, if you hate mercy. And know if you love it. If you love loving. If you love mercy. If you love love. If, if all love mercy, then all enjoy poverty and riches and riches and poverty, receiving and giving and giving and receiving. And no one worries about keeping. It just flows between all the members. Well, this woman sees mercy. She receives mercy and she bears mercy as if it were the painful fruit of her own womb. She bears mercy and mercy is worship. And it's eternal. So the means are the ends, and the end is the means. I mean, mercy is not simply a means to end poverty, but poverty is a means to grow mercy. Hesed, covenant love, grace. This entire fallen world is a means uh, to grow mercy. This world with all of its suffering and its pain, it's a means to grow mercy. Mercy is love expressed. Mercy is the harvest of the earth. Mercy is the grain and the grapes, the bread and the wine in Revelation chapter 14. It's body broken and blood shed. Mercy is the judgment of God. Mercy is God. God is mercy. So Jesus is mercy in flesh like like wine in an earthen vessel. Jesus is the good hanging on the tree in the garden. Not just good for something. Not just good for something. But good. He is beautiful. Beautiful beyond description. He's beauty. Beauty itself, he's beauty. And this strange woman, 
was the only one that saw it. Saw him that day. In two days, his body will be broken and life will pour out. And so now her flask is broken and a fragrant offering pours out. Jesus said the Son of Man will be crucified and she worshiped God's mercy with mercy. Jesus said the Son of Man will be crucified and the disciples said, what a waste, it's a waste. You see, his crucifixion is the crisis, the crisis, the judgment, the separation of this world. George Buttrick wrote this, let no man stand at the foot of the cross and say, why this waste? Judas thought such mercy was a waste and that he would fix things. Many scholars think he betrayed Jesus in order to press the Lord's hand and start a rebellion. And that's the reason he hung himself when he found out that Jesus chose uh, not to start a revolution in response to his jailing, but instead chose to be crucified. That's what some scholars think. Others think he just wanted the money. Whatever the case, Judas anointed himself Savior and decided that he'd fix things. We took a family vacation with my friend the excavator. As we stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon, I turned to him and said, wow, that's beautiful. And he looked at me and he said, I could fix that. <laughs> that, that big hole there gaping in there, I could fix that. We took a family vacation uh, with my friend the plumber. We stood at the foot of Niagara Falls and I turned to him and said, wow, that's beautiful. And he said, I could fix that. We stand at the foot of the cross, and what do we say? I could fix that. I could make sure that that never, ever, ever happens again. Jesus once showed me that I, he showed me this in an incredible, miraculous way. He showed me that I went into the ministry because I was bound and determined that what happened to my dad would never happen to me. Maybe I get so worried about what's good for me that I utterly miss what's good for nothing, just good. And even worse, maybe I try to fix it. I try to save the Savior from saving rather than dropping to my knees and worshiping the beautiful one. Well, Judas couldn't see the beauty, only the waste. Next verse. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. According to Exodus 21, 30 shekels of silver was the price of a, of a slave. To Judas, Jesus was a means to an end, like a slave, or a thing, or a prostitute. And maybe that's why so many women understood Jesus. They were poor. They were treated as things. They were used as concubines. They were sold as prostitutes. You know, in all the Gospels, I can find no instances of bad women related in any way to Jesus. All good, except perhaps Martha, and that's because she was busy with much serving. She had a cause. She was seizing control rather than surrendering to, to grace. It seems to me she was acting just like a man, a sinful man, acting like a man, and to us, she seems least strange, right? We all say, well, I'm kind of a Martha, blah, 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 blah. that's not strange. Well, Judas and bad men wanted to be the Messiah, the strange woman wanted to love the Messiah. To Judas, Jesus was good for something, 30 shekels of silver. To the strange woman, Jesus was just good, and so she dumped a fortune of perfume on his head. Judas worshiped a cause, and so he betrayed the cause of all things. 
Judas worshipped a kingdom, and so he betrayed the king of all kings. When we worship a cause or a kingdom, we betray the king. The strange woman didn't worship a cause or a king. She worshipped Jesus. She worshipped Jesus. She worshipped Jesus even when he appeared to be good for nothing. She worshipped Jesus even when he appeared to be naked and broken and weak. She, she worshipped Jesus even as he hung on the cross, especially as he hung on the cross. She loved him when he appeared to be good for nothing, and lo and behold, he was good for everything. An entire new world. The strange woman loved him when he was vulnerable, exposed, and naked. And lo and behold, she got pregnant. She got pregnant with life, eternal life. She bore eternal fruit, some of which you right now, right here, are. The strange woman is the church. She doesn't create the city. She doesn't build Zion. She is Zion. And she bears Zion. She's the new Jerusalem. In the Revelation, she comes down from heaven. Uh, she comes down from God, adorned as a bride for her bridegroom. And John says, she has the glory of God, the glory that it gives to no other. It must be his glory in her, reflected from her. The glory of this strange woman is that she sees the glory of God and thus reflects the glory of God, Jesus. The glory of the strange woman is the glory of the strange man, Jesus. There are all sorts of strange women in the Gospels, and they all have names and titles and occupations except for this one woman that we meet the night before Christ's passion begins. You see, I think she's archetypical. She's us. She's a picture of us. When we worship, we surrender the harlot ways of Eve and become who it is that we truly are the glorious bride of the living Christ. The bride of Christ who then becomes the mother of Christ, like Mary. Eve, old Eve becomes Mary. We become mother church, impregnated with the life of Christ. We bear the fruit of Christ, and that's mercy. When we use the beautiful one to make ourselves beautiful, we make waste. Unspeakable, epic, colossal waste. But when we worship the beautiful one, we give birth to the beautiful thing. And the beautiful thing is eternal and indestructible, and God even uses our waste to give birth to his beauty. So even our waste is not wasted, but somehow transformed into beauty. Well, as I was saying, for nine and a half years, I wanted to scream at the top of my lungs, what a waste. What the hell, Jesus? Why the waste? Sometimes serving Jesus seems like an absolutely colossal and even epic waste. Why the waste? For almost 10 years now, I've, I've asked that of God. I've asked it of God, for God has made it abundantly clear to me that everything that happened to me that day almost 10 years ago, it happened according to his will and under his sovereign hand almost 10 years ago. And so I'm hoping that the time will help me talk right now. But almost 10 years ago, I stood in front of the leaders of all the churches in my denomination west of the Mississippi, the denomination that my father helped start and that we both dearly loved. They had just taken a vote. They had just read the results. They had overwhelmingly condemned the notion that God might save all. And in the process, they had defrocked me. I buried my head in my friend Andrew's chest who was sitting next to me and just, be, I began to sob. I was just horrified, horrified that they would make pastors publicly confess faith in God's inability to save and even lack of desire to save, indeed his pleasure in not saving, 
I was horrified at the loss of all that I had worked so hard to create. I was horrified at my inability. I was horrified at my inability to sort it all out. I really didn't, and I still really don't know where I failed and where I succeeded. I mean, it's just like Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes, the man does not know what is love and what is hate. I didn't know what was right in me and what was wrong. I, I didn't know. I was absolutely horrified at the whole thing. I was horrified at all the waste. And then I remember they called me up front to pronounce the sentence, and for some reason I asked if I could pray. I suspect that that was partly motivated out of fear of the devil. But I think it was also partly motivated out of a genuine love for the beautiful one. I, I can't remember exactly what I prayed, but I remember at one point I prayed this. Father, forgive all of us, all of us. What happened next I haven't shared publicly for fear that it would sound self-aggrandizing, and I'm sure that I could and probably will use it that way at some point, but the thing itself was just the opposite of self-aggrandizing. It was the end of self and the presence of someone else. I prayed, then I sat down next to my wife Susan and she leaned over and she said to me, Peter, I just saw Jesus. She said, Peter, as you were praying when you said the word forgive, I looked up and I saw you I saw you hanging on a cross, and it was bad. But when you said the word forgive, I, I also saw Jesus. He walked into the room. He walked up to the front of the room in front of everybody, and Peter, I watched him take you down off that cross. She said, now it, it's going to take a long time to heal because you were really beat up, but Peter, I watched Jesus take you down from the cross. Do you see what that means? For 10 years, I've been struggling, wondering, what does that mean? I think this is what it means. I think it means it was not a waste. <laughs> Maybe it was the beautiful thing. If so, everything was arranged for that moment. And I was not the author of that moment. And what will come out of that moment, what is born of that moment, is really not my concern. It was not good for something. It was just good. See, I think all of your successes which ultimately may be the same thing as all of your failures, because what do you do in this world? You work and work, you work to build a life, and then you die, right? I think maybe all the works of your flesh, all of your accomplishments, all of your trials and tribulations, whether you're a prostitute, like the woman in the Gospel of Luke anointed Jesus' feet, remember, with the precious ointment and the tears, or whether you're an obedient disciple, like Mary of Bethany, who also anointed Jesus' feet with uh, the ointment and the tears. No matter who you are, all of your experiences in this world have been arranged so that at the right moment, you would do the beautiful thing and keep doing it for all eternity. All has been arranged that at the right moment you would worship the beautiful one, which is doing the beautiful thing. And that moment would then give birth to more moments of worship, which are the fruit of the Spirit and more of the beautiful thing. And now, you, you may think to yourself, if you, if you're kind of logical, hey, that's a circle. That's like circular reasoning. Worship the beautiful one, which gives birth to the beautiful thing, which is more worship of the beautiful one. If you think that, hey, that's a circle, you're absolutely correct. It's eternal. It's eternal life. It's the kingdom of God and the new Jerusalem coming down, and everything outside that circle is waste. 
until it enters the circle that is eternity and the new Jerusalem coming down whose gates are never shut. And listen closely. I don't think it matters whether you use a year's wage to buy a pipe organ or feed hungry orphans or dump a huge bottle of priceless perfume on some dude's head as long as you're doing whatever it is that you're doing as an act of worship offered to the beautiful one. And I don't think it's our concern what is born out of our worship. You know, if a woman like, is always worried about getting pregnant, it's, it's, very, it's likely that she may not have uh, a, 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 a children. She might not be able to get pregnant. But if a woman simply adores her bridegroom, well, it's not a law. I'm just saying that, well, fruit tends to happen. I think the sanctuary was born out of that moment nine and a half years ago. And I do not know what has yet to be born out of that moment and out of our worship. But that's not to be my concern. Jesus said, Peter, I will build my church. I think he's saying that to all of us in a million different ways. I will do it. I will do it. I make life. I produce. Trust me. And so over and over again, the story is of the barren woman that at one point gives birth, and then God commands her to cry aloud for the children of the desolate one are more than the children of her that is, that is married. But you see, that's, that's not to be my concern. Jesus said, Peter, I will build my church. So I must concern myself with worship. And you see, worship really isn't a concern. It's the greatest privilege that a human being can ever have. Nine and a half years ago, for me, it hurt like hell. But I'm beginning to see that that moment, that moment may have been, or maybe it is, and forever will be the greatest moments, the greatest event, and perhaps the greatest blessing of my entire life. Whatever the case, I cannot create the new Jerusalem, but I am the new Jerusalem, and through me, through us, Jesus might just do some creating. He just might create some life. Jesus is the Superman, the eschatos Adam, and the new Jerusalem is his bride. And so on the night in the old city of Jerusalem, when he was betrayed by all of us, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he said, this, this cup is the covenant. Sometimes it's called new, sometimes the. That's because it's eternal. That means it's always new. This cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do this in remembrance of me. God doesn't need a pipe organ. <laughs> God doesn't need you to feed the hungry. He doesn't need it. He can turn stones into bread. Uh, God doesn't need you to build the church or, or make Zion or create the new Jerusalem. God doesn't need you to do anything. God wants you to worship him. And he is love. And in this is love. And so may you worship and never, ever, ever stop. So, Lord Jesus, we adore you. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we're so happy that it's you that's standing on that throne. Holy, holy are you. Uh, Lord, in seminary, I learned that the word holy means 
biblically, it really means strange. You're strange. You're different than the way we do things down here. And we thank you that you are making us strange too. You are the lamb that is also the lion. You are the eschatos Adam, which means, I learned, that means Superman. <laughs> and we, we are your bride. That's a little weird for us dudes, Lord, but you're teaching us and you're making us like yourself, your body and your bride, and we worship you. Amen. Several years ago, I took my kids to see the movie uh, Spider-Man 2, and I think God showed me something at the end of the movie, and I just want to show you before you leave, okay? It's not, it's not real long, uh, but he showed me who we are. Not Peter Parker, Parker, but, but Mary, Mary Jane. No one really knows who Spider-Man is but Mary. Peter warned her of the dangers of loving him, and so Mary agreed to marry another. Now Peter Parker sits alone with literally the weight of the world on his shoulders. You shouldn't be here. I know there will be risks, but I want to face them with you. It's wrong that we should only be half alive, half of ourselves. I love you. Isn't it about time somebody saved your life? Jesus is not a tiger. <laughs> He's a lion. And the name of New Jerusalem in the Old Testament is Ariel. It means lioness. And as MJ knows, she doesn't save Superman, she or Spider-Man. She doesn't save Spider-Man the way Spider-Man saves her, but she ministers to Spider-Man as he saves the world. You know, only we, the bride, see Jesus as he truly is? Only we see him as he truly is, not just Spider-Man, but Peter Parker. Not just Superman, but Clark Kent. Not just God Almighty, but a baby in a manger and a man on a cross. It hurts to see him. But the beauty eclipses the pain and gives birth to life. We are the strange woman. And with our worship, we minister to Jesus as he saves the world. You know, as Jesus hung on the cross in the garden that day, the fragrance of that strange woman's ointment would have lingered in his hair. I wonder what that meant to him. 
then and there. Maybe that's a good thing to think about in this season of Lent. So may you see the beautiful one and you will do the beautiful thing. May you believe the gospel and worship. Amen.